Good morning and welcome to AM Voices brought to you by Mosaic Group and Ask Applications. Once a month, we will bring you diversity, equity, and inclusion-driven transformational stories from Mosaic Group and Ask Application employees. Our guests will share with you the real and sometimes uncomfortable challenges they face and how they've overcome them. These stories illustrate the reasons why employees value working for Mosaic Group and Ask Applications. My name is Elsie Dama, Director of Talent Acquisition and a DEI Ambassador. Please help me welcome our next guest. Episode one is titled Being a Global Leader Through Difficult Times. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Zach Roseman, CEO of Mosaic Group. How are we doing today, Zach? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So before we get started, there is a little game that we play where we ask your peers their initial thoughts when they hear your name. So are you ready to find out what we really think about you, Zach? Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm excited. I love feedback. So let's hear it. Awesome. So here are some words of kindness, integrity, optimism, which I have to agree on, energetic, smart, driven, curious, supportive, and my favorite, approachable. There's nothing better than an approachable CEO. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's all uh, inflating my ego. I'll try to pop that balloon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's very nice. I, uh, that's, I appreciate that. Whoever said it. Now, assuming you didn't just go to some website and say, what are good things to say about the CEO? <laughs> <laughs> I swear these are real. <laughs> So I am very much excited to get into this topic with you because, wow, like what a 2020. Talk about what keeps CEOs up at night. 2020 was definitely an unprecedented year and it threw many of us off guard. So as a leader of an organization, what were your initial thoughts about the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of crazy, actually. I, I was... Um, you know, we have offices around the world and I was in Austria the beginning of February and a friend sent me some links on Twitter to some videos of some like crazy stuff happening in China with uh, people, you know, their apartment building doors being welded shut and sort of the streets being sprayed down by these massive like disinfectant sprays, but in these trucks. And I think something clicked for me because I was about to fly back and I was like, oh, I guess this is like a, like we've been hearing a little about it. So this is early February. I guess it's a real thing. And then I got to the airport in Austria and I saw here and there a couple of people wearing masks. And I remember thinking, okay, it's a real thing, but like there's no need to wear a mask, right? Um, mm -hmm. Clearly I'm, I was wrong. But by the time I got back, I was pretty convinced that this was going to be something. And then a couple of weeks later, it's sort of mid mid February, there were these terrible reports coming out of Italy about the spiking cases there and the deaths there. And I remember reading an article that or sort of an op ed that an Italian wrote to like to my American friends. And he was like, this is coming. Be prepared. Don't close your eyes. And so I think I knew towards the second half of February that we were likely going to be shutting down at least New York City and probably yes. a lot more than that, even though it hadn't by mid-February, really, there hadn't been much in New York. I can't remember how many cases, but there were, you know, uh, I think less than 100 in New York. 
documented. But I had a feeling that we were going to have to shut down like Italy did. And then, you know, that feeling only intensified over the next two weeks, sort of into early March. And then at that point, I was, we ended up shutting down, I think March 12th or 13th was the day that Cuomo or de Blasio shut down city. And but already beginning of March was pretty clear that was going to happen. And then in terms of what it meant for the company, you know, I think we all knew that we'd be working from home for a while. We just didn't know how long. And I think that was what ended up being surprising. Because I think in the middle, in the middle of a pandemic, it's really the middle of all this stuff happening. No one really knows what's happening. You're not really thinking about the future as much as you're thinking about the present. Mm -hmm. And the present was progressively things getting worse and worse and worse. And it was more like immediate questions on your mind. Like, am I going to stay in my apartment or am I going to go stay with my family? Am I going to fly home or am I going to, you know, drive home? You know, I think those were the things people were dealing with less. So what comes a month, two months, six months from now. Got it. So apart from the surprise of having a pretty much shut down, what were some of the biggest pandemic related challenges that you faced as a CEO? Yeah, I think there were there were a lot of them. One of them is we are not a remote first company. There are some remote first companies out in the world, especially in the tech world, and they were built on the concept of remote first. And so they have people all around the world and they figured out processes and strategies, tactics, but how to be remote successfully. And it's very hard to take a business that has relied, that was built as an in-person face-to-face business and on a dime, just switch it to remote. So I, I think that that was a challenge I was pretty scared of. I think that actually what ended up happening is that our team performed incredibly over the first couple months in terms of being able to make that change very quickly. There were definitely some some pains with that change, especially for more creative and collaborative functions that really require sort of discussion and talking through things and and working together to come up with a solution. I think that became a lot harder, at least in the early days, still remains a little bit challenged, but I think the team did a fantastic job on there. Uh, I think some of the uh, the other challenges were, how do you maintain uh, company communication in a world where people aren't coming into the office every day. So for mm-hmm. instance, at our Apple office in Minsk, we have these what's up Friday meetings where, where much of the company attends and sort of a lot talked about and shared and you can't, you know, what's up Friday, you know, had to think of a different format for that uh, in a, in a pandemic world. So I think communication was, was one, one thing. Morale was another, right. People were all of a sudden staying in working in their home. And so they were sleeping eating, living, working in all the same space. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's just not a naturally human thing to do to confine yourself to a small space and say, this is where I live my life entirely. And so I think employee morale was challenged. I think in the beginning, everyone was sort of, we're in this together. And then as the months went on, you know, we had to figure out that the individual teams had to figure out ways to keep employee morale up when people are just confined to their small homes or big homes or small apartments or big apartments for an extended period of time themselves or with others or with kids and sort of all the distractions that that introduces. And then lastly, I think the culture is really hard to maintain, especially when you're onboarding new employees, right? We didn't stop hiring during the pandemic. And so how do you 
maintain a company culture when and onboard people successfully when you don't have an office or you, you don't have that that person isn't surrounded by that culture, right? Their only exposure to it is in sort of pre-planned Zoom calls here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not that spontaneous running into somebody, meeting someone new, going to get lunch and seeing someone that you didn't know was on your team or something like that. So I think those were some of the challenges. Definitely. So let's rewind. And looking back at the beginning of the pandemic, is there anything that you would change in your response to it? Yeah, I think I think so. One thing that we did, I forget if we started in, I think it was in mid, mid or late April, was I started doing sort of video updates on how the company was doing just sort of very personal, you know, like me in front of my iPhone, just recording a two or three minute video, sending that to the whole company. I think I would have done two things differently with that. And I I would do that once every week or two. One, I would have started it earlier just to get my face. Not that I think it's the most beautiful face in the world, but (laughs) my face out in front of the company and sort of reassuring them and giving that, you know, we're, we're okay. We're going to get through this. So I started earlier. And then I also, I think as the pandemic wore on, I stopped doing it because there was just so much to do otherwise. And I think I would have continued that and like to have that, have done that on more of a consistent schedule and and maintained it. One other thing I think I would do differently is in New York, the city announced that offices could reopen starting, I think it was around July 1st or something, maybe, or maybe right after July 6th, right after Independence Day holiday. And I was, you know, we did a survey of our team in New York and found that, you know, roughly 20% of people wanted to come back to the office for one reason or another. And so I was, we sort of worked really diligently myself and the HR team really mostly to get the office ready and abide by all the new guidelines and all that stuff. And I think what ended up, what ended up happening is that, well, what ended up happening is that we had much lower attendance at the office than the survey would have indicated. And I think the reason was the survey indicated people who would maybe like to come back to the office at some point in the next couple of months, not people who were like itching to get back to the office. So maybe mm-hmm. have spent a little bit less time on that than we did. But, you know, look, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. I'm actually, I would actually be interested, similar to how you, you, you asked for, you know, some of my peers for their reactions. Uh, when they said my name, I'd, I'd be curious to hear how other people thought we could have done better. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot more ways that, that I'm not thinking of. Absolutely. That's a really good point to make. So I can see that you have definitely learned from this experience because <laughs> you did kind of make a few points on that. So as we switch gears, we also had a compounded issue with some political unrest. So yeah. it was like the icing on the cake. So how do you go about leading an organization where most of its employees are in an area of political unrest? Yeah, look, it was very difficult. And I have had massive empathy for all of our team members in Belarus. I've probably been to Belarus more than 10 times. I've met so many people on the team there. And, you know, to, to hear about the difficult situations that they themselves were in and, you know, numerous of our employees were detained. And that's just 
crushing and, and difficult. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was and is a really hard thing that our team is dealing with there. And I think everyone is dealing with it differently. Some, some people are being more active in the political process. Some people are being less active. Some people are the same, you know, but, but it's, it's something that, you know, as a business, we have to support our employees. So, you know, we, we opened up a way for people who wanted to just get away for, for a week or two weeks or three weeks, whatever, whatever it was, we said, Hey, here's a stipend, no questions asked, you know, take a trip somewhere and get away. Cause if, if you don't feel safe and we're working with the team now to offer them uh, other alternatives to, to make their lives better and make them feel safer. And I, you know, a big shout out to the, the Minsk HR team for really just being amazing and, and responding to our employees needs uh, as much as they possibly could, especially in a sort of, in a, in a, in a, coronavirus environment but you know what i think if i've learned anything this year it's it's expect the unexpected and political instability doesn't only happen in belarus uh, as we saw this week in the united states most definitely (laughs) so i know you alluded to it earlier about engagement being something that was definitely a challenge so how do you keep employees engaged through COVID and through this political unrest? Look, I think every team does it differently and every person does it differently. For me, it was about keeping people informed. How do you make sure people, you know, when you're, when you're in your home, when you're in your house and 20 feet from your bed to your office and then 10 feet from the office to the kitchen, you can kind of get in this cocoon of uh, sort of your eyes are sort of, you're, you're very focused on what's directly in front of you. And so the thing that I tried to focus on in my messages to the company was, let me tell you about what's going on at other parts of the company that you're not necessarily aware of. And here's how we're doing, right? And I think there's two things going on there. One is to open up people's eyes that as opposed to a, in the office where you see people on different teams and you sort of hear the lunchtime conversation about other products and other initiatives, when you're at home, you really don't do that. So let me try to like elevate your thinking beyond what's in front of you to sort of mm-hmm. make you feel a part of a great, make you feel a part, like you're a part of the greater whole that is Mosaic. And then second, transparency communication is important is because during a pandemic, sometimes many times, many businesses suffered. And while overall our business was actually pretty resilient, one piece of our business suffered, our, our, our translation business, because people stopped getting on planes. Makes but overall, sense. our business actually ended up being very resilient. And I think it's really important when there's so much uncertainty in people's lives in a pandemic with a political unrest situation to reassure them, if you can, that, hey, we're here, our business is strong, we're profitable, we have no intentions of making any job cuts or anything like that that are related to the pandemic. And I think that's really important for people to hear that, that you're committing to them as they commit to you, crazy world. So that was important. So I wanted to be over communicative on that front. Perfect. So did you feel as though you had to shift any expectations that you had for the employees in Belarus? And how did you go about doing that in consideration of their situation? I think our team in Belarus holds themselves to high, high, they have a high bar for themselves, right? So, which, which is fantastic. And I wouldn't say I shifted expectations, but I think in any scenario where there's a major shock to a system, whether it's this, you know, with a political unrest in Belarus or the pandemic or, or anything else where there's a major shock to the system, you would have to be cognizant of the impact that can have on people and some of this sort of second order effects of that, right? So it's not just that someone's going from 
working at their very comfortable workstation in the office where they spent the last two years and they set it up just right with the right size monitors and the keyboards in the right place and they have their, you know, their mouse they love. All of a sudden now they're in their in their home and maybe they're at their kitchen table, like on their laptop hunched over, you know, but the second order effects are also maybe they have kids around. And so there's interruptions or their spouse is there. And so they're walking behind the camera. I mean, this is all stuff that we all realize very quickly from being at home. Oh yes. Early on, you know, like I had like my three-year-old niece at the time, you know, playing with her toys behind me. Right. Like, and I think it wasn't so much a matter of shifting expectations when it came to work, because I think our team is so diligent and they were so focused that the work continued to get done. And I was just so impressed by it, but it was more, how do we shift our mindset to say, okay, things are different. What does this new world look like? Less about expectations, more about like, how do we individually sort of shift? Maybe it's, maybe it's how do we individually shift how we think about expectations, not the expectations themselves. Awesome. And then from a global perspective, tell me about a time when you may have encountered any external obstacles in different countries that impacted the business and how you were able to handle that and get through it. Well, I'm well, three days ago, we had a attempted I don't want to riot or not attempted. We had a riot at the center of our democracy in the United States. So I'm just debating like we have, if we have enough, if I have enough perspective on that to make, to get an answer there. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, Belarus was certainly one. I think the, the election in the United States a few months ago was very polarizing and managing the company through that period was, I, I wouldn't say it was difficult because I don't want to sort of exaggerate, but I think, we have to be very careful, right? I mean, there's the line between we support all of our employees and want them to succeed and excel and be happy and comfortable and grow. And then there's also our employees are diverse, right? Uh, and they come, they have many different backgrounds and perspectives and points of view. And mm-hmm. and that's okay. It's more, not, it's more than okay. That's, that's uh, we want diversity and perspectives. And so how do you create an environment where, and this is not just us that, that I think is challenged with this, but every company, every social media platform, the media, everyone, how do you create a world in which, you know, how do you set the norms for your world, right? And where do you draw the line of what falls outside of the norms of your organization or, or whatever company that you're in? And how are you drawing those lines, right? Like, what is the rationale for it? And I think the election was a trying time. We had to, you know, for instance, at, at Teltech, they noticed that their, their whole business is blocking spam texts and spam calls. And mm-hmm. in the lead up to the election, there were billions and billions of spam calls and spam texts being sent, especially from the, the campaigns. Now, both sides of the spectrum were sending these, both Democrats and Republicans. But the Republican side was sending, was, was sending five times, I think the number was five times as many as the Democrat side, right? And so the, we did a press release at Teltech sort of highlighting the growth in these political spam calls and spam texts. Um, but what we didn't want to do is turn RoboKiller itself into a partisan tool, right? What we wanted to say is the main story here is that politicians are, are spamming people's phones with calls and texts. Mm-hmm. It happens to be that Republicans, especially supporting the Trump campaign, are doing it at a much higher rate. But that's not like that. Don't, don't get distracted by turning this into an anti-Republican or anti-Trump story. The story is that pol- politicians are abusing your phones for their own narrow purposes. And so the question is, how do you, how do you get that message out across 
while also being truthful about the fact that there are five times as many spam texts and spam calls coming for Republican candidates than there are for Democratic candidates, but mm-hmm. not making that the story, right? That is the data, and we want to be truthful and present the data as is. But the real story is about the rise in these kinds of in this kind of spam calls and spam text. So I, I don't know if that, you know, I think between Belarus and the U.S., we've definitely definitely had our fair share of challenges in the different countries in which we operate. Absolutely. So is there anything that you want other global leaders to take away from leading through this type of adversity? I know you mentioned earlier, expect the unexpected, but is there anything <laughs> else you want to add to that? <laughs> Um, look, uh, far be it for me to say that I have something to share with global leaders. I'm a relatively young CEO and I haven't even been on the job for a year, but I guess, um, so take what I say with a grain of salt. I guess what I say, what I'll, one thing I'll say is we should all remember to be deliberate in our words and actions. And so oftentimes quick reactions and responses are more emotional than logical or rational. And so I like to get a little bit of space before making a response or, or making a decision. Um, sometimes you don't have that luxury and sometimes you need to make quick decisions and that's just being in the business world or being in life. And I, I am the biggest supporter of that of anyone. But other times I think it's really important to assess the situation and say, is this something that needs a response right now? And is the response that's being proposed the appropriate response or should we take a little bit of time to to reason out the right response. And I, I think that has to, that, that advice has to be balanced with no one, I, you know, I, I really try to avoid uh, and counsel my team to avoid getting into analysis paralysis, right? Where, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're, you can't make a decision because you always want more and more data. But overall, I do think that there's room for, and this is not just for our company, but for people in the world in general. I mean, look at the comments, people, the comments and the, responses that happen on social media platforms. You know, someone sees something that their friend wrote or a family member wrote and immediately responds to it um, in a way that they probably would regret if they looked at it five days later and said, you know what, I don't know if I should have said that, right? Mm-hmm. Or in a text message conversation, you receive something and you're immediate, you, you want to respond immediately, but your gut response is not necessarily, is more emotional, not necessarily the right one. So I think that, that's, that's what I would say is, is, is being having a sense of urgency, but also being deliberate about how you respond to situations. Fantastic. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate you making the time. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you for the questions. And uh, it's always good to reflect and, and think about the past in a way that I haven't before. And I think this conversation helped me do that.